This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. My guest today, former Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe. And sir, thank you for your time. You bet, Bill. Always good to be with you. You have a wealth of knowledge about threats around the world and here at home. I I think in a general sense, where do you direct your attention? Where do you watch? Yeah, so Bill, I, what I'd say is, you know, uh, having the unique opportunity to really see more intelligence than anyone in the country for the past year. You know, uh, I've thought about it each day for, for the past year. And and it, even as I uh, left the position in January, you know, sort of thought, where do we need to be? Where do we need to be focused now and in the future? And, and there's really th- three areas. And it's sort of a, you know, now and then or short, intermediate term and then longer term. And um, as you know, I talk a lot about China, and China is the greatest national security threat as a nation that we need to deal with right now. Cybersecurity is the greatest national security risk or threat um, that we face, you know, as as a nation right now. And then longer term, space. Space is the next frontier that we need to make sure that we dominate, and it, it controls so much about our lives that down the road, whoever controls space and the rules in space, you know, our national security is just is, is very much tied to that when you look at how dependent we are on satellite technology and, and uh, those kinds of things. So, you know, there's always concerns, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis about certain terrorist threats in certain places as it comes up around the world. But, but really from sort of the 10,000 foot view, the things that sort of keep you awake and know that are going to be long-term persistent problems that our country's going to face, um, that we need to face as a nation to remain the world's dominant superpower. That's where my mind goes to. Interesting. Let me come back to space in a moment. I I always thought the nation that can defend its satellites wins. And that might be 20 or 30 years down the road, but I'll circle back to that. How's Joe Biden doing? Yeah. Yeah. Too early to tell. Um, you know, I, I liked some of the rhetoric that came out early on from some of the folks as they were going through the confirmation process and sort of tough talk on China. And, you know, and I'll say this, you know, we need Joe Biden and his administration to be successful in the realm of intelligence and national security or we all suffer. It's easy to get caught up in partisan politics. And having said that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm concerned Um because um, the president himself, President Biden, has taken some positions early on uh, with respect to, particularly with respect to both China and Iran, that frankly, Bill, um, setting all politics aside, are, are not supported by, by our current intelligence and the threat landscape. Um, and things can't have changed that much um, for some of the policy decisions that he's advocating for. They just don't line up with, with some of the positions that he's taking. So, so I'm concerned about that, you know, um, and, uh, but, you know, like I said, I think it's just, it's too early to tell. 
Mm. Let's go a little deeper on China. You wrote a piece back on the 3rd of December, 2020, which seems so long ago. Uh, You wrote China is national security threat number one. You conclude the following way. This generation will be judged by its response to China's effort to reshape the world in its own image and replace America as the dominant superpower. The intelligence is clear. Our response must be as well. Explain. Yeah. So, um, you know, the title of this was China is national security threat number one. What I really wanted the title to be um, was, look, the election's over. Can we all now be honest about China? Because, you know, for the past year, uh, and I don't mean to minimize the threat of Russia and events like the recent solar winds, cyber hack really underscores that, you know, um, Russia is a dangerous adversary. But as again, to my point about seeing more intelligence than anyone, it became increasingly clear that um, as dangerous as Russia can be, they have a very limited toolkit. And, and the best way to demonstrate that, Bill, is to, is to point out the fact that the United States has the largest economy in the world. China has the second largest economy in the world. And Russia's not in the top 10. In fact, if Texas were a country... Uh, and some of us here in Texas think that we should be. Texas, uh, the economy of Texas is larger than the economy of Russia. So Russia can only afford to be dangerous in certain places. China is competing with us everywhere, and and we just see that. And as I looked at different threat streams of intelligence, whether it were related to you know economic espionage, whether it related to military power, whether it related to emerging technologies and the things that they were doing with companies like Huawei, China's competing with us everywhere. And it are becoming near peer competitors with us in places where there used to be big gaps. And, and now there's a question whether we're even leading uh, on some technology issues. China's frankly, you know, shoulder to shoulder with us right now. And and that it's very clear what the national strategy is that China is taking. And, you know, if we don't recognize and rise to that, it really is the challenge of this generation. And, and we won't be the world's greatest superpower mm. um, if we don't take that seriously. I just want that. That's where I want the Biden administration to be honest about it. And, you know, and, and so one of the things, you know, without, you know, getting into, you know, obviously a lot of the folks that uh, what we're finding out that, that are in the administration, you know, have worked with China and frankly, you know, have gotten rich doing work with China. And so will they hold China accountable? And, and that's a question when I say it's too soon to tell what I really mean is, you know, Will people do what they're supposed to, which is put our national security interests first? And if we do that, we we all need to recognize the threat that China mm-hmm. is. And and there seems to be a bipartisan consensus in terms of, you know, things now on Capitol Hill, the way people talk about China. But, you know, actions are different than words. And, you know, um, and we need the actions to reflect uh, the problem, the threat that China faces. Yeah. Uh, or presents to us. About 18 months ago, I think Joe Biden as a candidate was in Iowa, and he said that the possibility of China eating our lunch is not going to happen. It was a come on man kind of response. Well, earlier in the week, he changed. And in the Oval Office, he's on camera saying, China's going to eat our lunch. Well, why would he make such a pivot after talking with President Xi on the phone? Well, what I'd like to say is that when he made the comment in Iowa, he he wasn't getting the benefit of, you know, the intelligence briefings that that he started to receive when he became president elect. And like I said, that you know, you you pointed out the, you know, the Wall Street Journal op-ed and, you know, the, you know, as I as I said in the conclusion, the intelligence is clear and our response has to be as well and you know, I have to think that that 
he and his advisors were, you know, I, I don't know if surprised is the right word, but but when you look at it and you look at how quickly China has closed the gap and, and the things that they are doing and where they are spending money and you can't help but be concerned, you know, about China's ability to challenge us. As I said, you know, in certain places without, you know, I don't want to talk about those in detail because it, it poses a national security threat to acknowledge that, but there are places where China's frankly doing a better job and is, is further down the, the curve on some technology issues than we are. And that that's never been the case before. Hmm. I know what the readout was from the White House after that two hour phone call with the Chinese president. I, I don't know what the readout was in China uh, or within the Communist Party, but some insiders are whispering and reporting that President Xi was aggressive. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Um, I think China and, and frankly, to a lesser extent, Iran, what, what I can tell you is this, Bill, is that the intelligence was also clear that, you know, countries have have preferences in terms of who, who they would hope would win an election. And, and China and Iran both, you know, were hopeful that that uh, President Biden would be elected because the policies of the Trump administration were were frankly, uh, some would say confrontational to, to, to China um, and to Iran both. And I think what you're seeing in, in both cases, to some extent, they're now testing this administration and they're looking to see weaknesses. I mean, look what we saw, you know, China immediately in, in this administration, you know, bombers flew over Taiwan. Um, the threats in the South China Sea became more expansive. Um, they talked, uh, you know, they, they, immediately issued sanctions against certain U.S. officials from the Trump administration, took actions against people like, you know, Jack Ma and, and uh, you know, and Jimmy Lai in, in, um, in Hong Kong. And, you know, so all of those things are, are places to see, wait a minute, when, when you know, the Trump administration and, the, and, and President Trump would, would push back or hold to account on, um, on actions that take, China has taken, will the, will the Biden administration push back? And I think that's what uh, I think that's what you're seeing with President Xi is he wants to see what he can get away with with President Biden. And, and will there be pushback like there was in our administration? Mm-hmm. They had mentioned Taiwan and Hong Kong and some of the reporting that I was referring to and also the Uyghurs, the, the Muslims in Western China as a defensive posture that the Chinese president took in that conversation. But then Joe Biden had a town hall on CNN the other night. I don't know. Did you see it? I didn't. During his discussion over U.S.-Chinese relations, he referred to certain cultural norms as if there was the distinction that needed to be respected. Do you understand that? Yeah. I mean, you know, we've talked about the, the issue of how you deal with China and, you know, you do have, you know, respect cultural norms and differences. But what happened with the Uyghurs is genocide. I mean, and, and it's defined as such. And when we when we called that out at the end of our administration, you know, Tony Blinken as Secretary of State came in and said, yeah, the Trump administration was right about that. I mean, there are some things that, you know, um, that, that, that uh, you know, respecting cultural differences is one thing. Uh, violations of international standards of human rights is something altogether different. And that's what China's doing and, and has been doing. Hmm. You're listening to a discussion with John Ratcliffe, former director of national intelligence on this edition of Hammer Time. Our conversation continues after this. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services 
Marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Back with John Ratcliffe. Really appreciate your time. So interesting to scan the world and see that the Asian pivot toward China that was talked about in 2012 is actually happening now. And I think it's happening in real time. You referred to a few things a bit earlier in our conversation. One was the solar winds attack with regard to cybersecurity. I think it's hard to get your head around what that solar winds idea is all about. How would you explain that? Well, um, you know, as I uh, mentioned, you know, earlier, you know, I view cybersecurity as, as one of our greatest national security threats. And really the, the way I would describe, um, what happened with the solar winds attack is essentially what we saw was, and I think you know I can say this without revealing anything that's classified. The the Russians and most likely the the SBR, which is their their espionage service, piggybacked on a third party software that you know is u- used to connect and manage and monitor computer networks around the world. And in this case, it was a is a very popular product called SolarWinds, uh, an Orion product that. Uh, you know, as we have come to find, more than 18,000 organizations installed this update, um, which actually, you know, included malware on it that, you know, allowed uh, the Russians to get a backdoor into as many as 18,000 different organizations, a secret backdoor. And and really, the best way for people to understand that is this is an issue of supply chain vulnerability. So you can you can set up networks and try and protect those networks, but every time you download software, if you're not vetting that software and you don't you can't verify the supply chain you know issues and where it's come from and who's written the code into it, you're going to have problems. And 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 we're seeing that. And so it was, a, you know, is is a very um, sophisticated approach. It's something the Russians are very good at, and you know, it's not a total surprise to some of us. I mean, some of us, uh, you know, people. I think, you know, from an intelligence community standpoint, you know, a lot of people when this happened, they were like, uh, you know, um, saying to to me, well, you know, why didn't you stop this? Well, people have to understand from the intelligence community standpoint, we can't surveil private sector networks. It's not allowed. It's against the law. So agencies that, that I oversaw as the director of national intelligence, like the NSA and the CIA, we, we do have those authorities to, to, to look at what's happening overseas and what our adversaries are doing. But when we talk to, about protecting networks in this country, that's the responsibility of the Department of Homeland Security. And that's, that's where this failure happened, 
it was uh, really an inability yeah. to to look domestically inwardly at at the networks that that the Department of Homeland Security was supposed to be protecting until they build sort of a, a, a mechanism to vet anything that gets uploaded into, for instance, government, you know, on the civilian side, government networks, we could continue to have this kind of solar winds problem. So they could get into a government agency, perhaps Pentagon, others. They could get into an American company, say Microsoft. Are they still in the process of trying to violate uh, the agencies of the companies here in the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. And, and what, um, we, what information we, would they be able to get from that? Um, it's, it's email traffic. It's communications back and forth. Um, uh, you know, in, in some cases, depending on the agencies, there could actually be, you know, um, plans and agendas, sort of blueprints for, you know, for instance, you know, you know, how something's how the commerce, you know, Secretary of Commerce plans to do something, um, you know, those, those that was one of the agencies that they got in, I think it was commerce, uh, um, transportation. So, you know, there's all sorts of valuable information that, um, uh, that can be accessed through that kind of um, through that kind of access, and the problem is, is you know, the way computer networks are set up is once someone's inside, it's difficult to know. Uh, it's it's hard to get them out. They can sit quietly in the corner of your network and just observe. And if they're in there trying to do something destructive, then it's easy to, um, you know, to to locate the problem and sort of root it out. But if they're there just to 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 watch and gather information, you know, it's it's much more difficult to diagnose those those problems and and correct it. It, it can be done, but it takes a while. But it would be anyone that tells you that that this this problem has been fixed because we're aware of it. The scope and breadth of it is so broad. We're not even sure all of the organizations that have been fully compromised yet. There has to be a full diagnostic done. So. So, it, you know, it's going to continue to be a problem. And that's wow. why when it's it's why I talk about cybersecurity as, you know, as our greatest national security threat, not from a nation state perspective, but from a threat to our country. And this is a perfect example of why. Now, Russia is, you know, is a, it's a viable adversary, but so is China. So is um, uh, so is Iran. So is North Korea. The way you have to think about it, Bill, is this is cybersecurity and the threats in cyberspace, um, it's a great equalizer. Countries like North Korea and Iran that could not possibly compete with the United States and cause us damage from a kinetic fire, uh, firepower standpoint can compete with us in cyberspace. And, and so, you know, when you can do damage from uh, in a few keystrokes um, from half a world away in a, you know, in a matter of seconds, um, uh, those countries have found that that's the best way to try and attack um, an adversary that they can't compete with from a kinetic firepower. They're never going to, you know, a, a North Korea is never going to have the, you know, um, you know, uh, the kinds of uh, weaponry that we're going to have at the, you know, at the scope and level and sophistication that we have. But countries like that can compete in cyberspace and, and, um, and they're investing in that and they know that it's hard to play defense on on all of your networks. And and that's the other point about that that makes it so difficult is don't misunderstand. We do these things uh, without getting into anything I shouldn't talk about. But we it, offensively, we have all sorts of cyber operations where we're able to get in other countries' networks as well. It's harder to play defense because, you know, 
um, uh, there's thousands and thousands of doorways into every network. And uh, whether it's through phishing exercises or um, or software updates, like we saw with the solar winds, there's a lot of ways to get in. It's it's like trying to protect a building that has you know, um, thousands in, in cases, actually millions of, of doors and windows, and, and they just need to get one of those open to get inside. And that's what makes it, yeah, what makes cybersecurity issues difficult. It's insidious. One more question on this, though, and I want to ask you about space. You said the Russians are good at this. Are we better than they are? Yeah, we're better than everyone. We, we have the best on cyber issues. We still have the best Cyber, you know, the NSA is the most sophisticated. Um, you know, we have the best code makers and code breakers in the world. But, um, but the, but the, you know, the the gap there on those kinds of issues, um, you know, is narrowing because other countries can invest in in those types of issues. So, um, you know, it, it, I, I use that as an example where I talked about, you know, Russia's economy. Russia doesn't have an aircraft carrier. They don't have an operable aircraft carrier now. There's certain things that they just can't afford to do to compete with us. And they're, you know, so the size of their Navy and the size of their Air Force and 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 some of the things that they can spend money on in space, they just don't have the resources to do it. But cyber is an area where they're, you know, almost as good as we are. And so um, it's a place where they can compete um, far more effectively with us and cause us a lot more damage. Mm. And, and a lot of other countries think that way too, but, but the Russians are very, very good. Just so our listeners are aware, we're having this conversation on Thursday afternoon around one o'clock East coast time on the 18th of February. And the news can change as it always does. And by the time some people listen to this, the news will likely change, but in space today, we're waiting on a U.S. Rover to reach Mars. Uh, amazing. But it was only a week or two ago where I think the Chinese sent a uh, spacecraft to the dark side of the moon, collected some some moon rocks and flew back to China and su- did it successfully. And in between that time, the tiny country of the United Arab Emirates flew their own rover to Mars. So what's happening in space? How would you characterize it in terms of who is winning or who has motivation over others. So, so that everyone, um, you know, to give everyone a little, all of your listeners a, a great peace of mind is we're the best in space and we really have no near peer competitor right now when it comes to certain aspects of our, our space program. Having said that, the things that you just highlighted, Bill, demonstrate why space is a, is a domain where you know, our vital interests are increasingly at risk because we see adversaries developing um, uh, um, technologies and in some cases like China, destructive weapons um, to threaten the U.S. and our allies and our and our, cap- our capabilities. So, so, you know, China right now is pursuing wep- weapons that are capable of destroying our satellites up to what's called geosynchronous Earth orbit, which is where many of our critical space systems will reside. And and why this is so important is when you think about what our satellites do, um, our critical infrastructure in this country um, is supported by those satellites. So um, uh, almost every aspect of the United States economy, our consumer supply chains, our transportation, our telecommunications, our agriculture, our, our finance, all of that is tied um, 
in one way or another to um, satellites in space. And so our adversaries recognize that. And it's why China is making a, a huge push in anti-satellite um, missiles, things that can take our satellites out and, and um, adversely affect our economy. And it's not just China. Right now, over 80 nations operate in space and 50 countries, and you, you mentioned tiny countries like you know UAE, have dedicated government budgets um, for space. But again, right now, um, we don't have what we call a near-peer competitor. And it was one of the reasons why, if you watch the news, Bill, one of the things that, that, um, that I did was I added space, um, space force, to the intelligence community. We added space force as the 18th member of the U.S. intelligence community because we have an advantage right now. We need to make sure that we maintain the ultimate high ground for decades to come. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that this administration will sort of follow the work that we've done there and, and recognize that. And, and they've said they said that they will. So I hope that that continues. But but that's the importance of space going forward. Yeah. When you think about the intelligence you can gather in the space, how does that fit into your previous role? It, well, it's a huge part of it. So, so agencies um, like the um, the NGA, you know, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, um, um, the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, um, those those are agencies specifically dedicated to putting satellites in space and getting intelligence from those satellites that we use to give us an advantage to give our army, navy, our air force, now our space force advantages over other countries. It's why we have the best intelligence enterprise in the world because because we have more of that and we're better at it than any other country. And um, you know, information is 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 power and we have more information on our adversaries than they have on us because we dominate in space right now. So that's why I wanted to make, um, make uh, the space force now part of the intelligence community so that, so that, um, you know, we never lose that advantage. I want to throw out a hypothetical at you as we conclude our, our conversation here. And thank you for your time and my best to you. I know you're coming from Texas and you've got, you guys were dealt a tough hand this past week, weather wise. I've always wondered who acts up first internationally. And I think about four years ago and what Chairman Kim was doing in North Korea by testing the ICBMs, and this went on for some time. And I remember when President Trump came out and talked about uh, hitting him with fire and fury. And I, I think everybody, they cocked their heads and say, whoa, are we going to war? And there was a day when there was a false siren that went off in Guam at noon on a Saturday. And uh, it, was, it was a concerning time. And a month later, Trump and Kim are having cocktails in Singapore and everything was diluted, which was a good thing. Right. And I've wondered who, who, who do you think acts out first? Because we've, we talked about Russia and China and... I don't know if there's another threat from ISIS or Iran that that concerns you the most, or maybe if it it's, could he be even here at home. Um, and th- this is a large question for you to fill in the blank for our listeners. But how would you answer that hypothetical? So my greatest concern um, w- under that hypothetical is is Iran, and it's it's not just what I'm afraid Iran 
may do. And I do think that Iran is one of those countries that is testing Biden, the Biden administration right now. Um, but it really has to do with all of the good work that has been done and, and the indications that the Biden administration may undo that. The biggest foreign policy disaster that this, this administration can make in the foreseeable future would be, go, would be to go back to some form of, of the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, and th- th- this was the thing that concerned me the most as, as the outgoing director of national intelligence was w- within days of becoming the president-elect, Joe Biden said, you know, indicated they wanted to go back to this Iranian nuclear deal that his prior administration with President Obama had been part of. And I, I really hoped, Bill, that once he started to get the intelligence briefings, that he would walk that back. Um, and they haven't done that. And and what's concerning about that, Bill, is the intelligence is so clear on this that you have to set aside what you think of President Trump or the, even the Trump administration. No one can argue the fact that four years later, after the, the prior administration and where we left things with Iran, that Iran right now is poorer weaker and less influential than they've been in the last two decades. And as a result of the things that 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 were done um, and the intelligence on this is is fully supportive, is we have peace in the Middle East because Iran is poorer, weaker and less influential. Things like the Abraham Accords wouldn't have happened in the past when folks like, you know, former Secretary of State John Kerry said peace in the Middle East wasn't possible. Part of that was because Iran had the ability to to, you know, pay proxies with with money that they had to engage in mayhem and and um, and and cause problems. And they just can't do that now. And and they would bully their Middle Eastern neighbors. And so now countries like UAE and Bahrain and, and others were able to they were still threatened by Iran, but they, but they were less concerned because they knew that, um, you know, Iran didn't have the ability to cause the kind of mayhem um, that they did before. The sanctions that were imposed by the prior administration, um, Iran is broke. I don't mean kind of broke. Iran is broke. And the financial pressure that they're under, the inflation that their country is facing, to go back on that right now, Bill, would be, um, as the saying goes, um, would be to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And and so my concern is, and what you see from Iran, of course, is saying to the Biden administration, well, you better get in. There's a limited period of time to sort of reinstitute this nuclear program and this agreement. And what you see is all of the Middle Eastern countries that we consider allies, and of course, Israel, are all saying, don't you dare go back. Um, we've made too much progress. And so, you know, I'm hoping that um, you know, uh, and Iran, I think, is going to uh, going to continue to test this administration and force them back into a deal that they know that you know President Biden is in favor of. And I think again, it would just be a disaster. We've seen we've 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 got relative peace in the Middle East now um, because of the things that were done where we followed the intelligence. And if we if if we go back into that kind of arrangement where we um, take sanctions off of uh, uh, Iran and let the world do business with them and let them become healthier and stronger economically, we're going to have the kinds of problems that we've that, that they have engendered in that area for, for decades now. And it would just be a colossal mistake. 
Do you miss it? You know, I, 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 I do miss, I do miss it. I mean, in the sense of, I wish I was, um, you know, I wish I had the ability to be working on some of the things that, you know, uh, it was the best job in the world. I mean, I, I don't, I don't mind telling you, I mean, um, you know, in, in the school, in the, in the, you know, span of a few days, I might be on an intelligence sub at the bottom of the ocean. I might be ordering, uh, you know, to take one of, uh, you know, one of the worst terrorists off of the, uh, off of the planet. Um, you know, or I might be walking into brief the leader of the free world on, you know, any intelligence issue. And so those types of things I, I understood, you know, you know, I mean, I'm grateful that I had a chance to do it for any period of time. I would have liked to have done it for longer. But having said that, the the, the other side of it is I, I'm enjoying at least for now. I mean, this week hasn't been normal because of the weather here, but but some degree of normalcy. I mean, the, the challenge of the of, of, you know, the job is that there was never an off switch and, you know, was almost constant chaos. And so some some degree of normalcy and not having a security detail with me all the time. You know, I'm, I'm sort of enjoying that. So, wow. you know. How do you think we missed the riot on Capitol Hill on January 6th? Why did we not have a greater security presence at the Capitol? So that goes kind of to the to the same point that, you know, we we talked about before, you know, the the my my visibility into that was not as great as you would think. People think, oh, well, what, don't why don't we have better intelligence? Well, we can't use our authorities to sort of spy introspectively. That that's the whole Carter Page problem, right? You can't use intelligence authorities on U.S. citizens, and and so it's a law enforcement issue. And you know, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but but really, the FBI and DHS had authority for that, and um, they had intelligence that that there were some folks like some of the these things, the the groups like the Proud Boys. That were that were going up there, and even other groups like Antifa, that you know, um, sort of your you know people that are always looking for opportunities to sow discord. But I think it was a kind of a combination of things that people didn't didn't really think that these things would happen. But I think it, as they hold hearings on this, you're going to find that you know even folks on Capitol Hill had an opportunity. I mean, it, one thing I know from talking with the Secretary of Defense is that there was an offer made, and even you know. President Trump thought that they might need more National Guard troops, you know, and and understood that the offer was made to bring 10,000 troops in. And it was waved off. Now, FBI saying, well, we didn't we weren't the ones that waved it off. The mayor of D.C. saying, I'm not the one that waved it off, but they were waved off. And so, um, you know, had they accepted that just as a show of force, I think you you wouldn't have had, you know, um, what happened because. I think you've you figured this out is a lot of the people that were going to the, you know, there were church groups that were up there and, that, you know, and they heard the president say, you know, peacefully protest. And, and and a lot of them walked up to Capitol Hill thinking that's what it was. And then they saw a lot of stuff going on. And a lot of them, you know, folks I've talked to were like, man, I turned around and was like this. I didn't sign up for this, you know. And so but I don't think any of it would have happened had there been a greater show of force outside the Capitol and. Um, because again, my authorities didn't go directly to that. You know, I can't tell you firsthand. I didn't have a conversation with Nancy Pelosi where she said, you know, we don't want that, but I've had other people relate to me that they had those types of conversations. So, you know, I think that the truth will come out there and it'll surprise some people. So so you think we will learn the whole story? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think some of the reason that you saw this agreement 
you know, where there was going to be witnesses and then there wasn't going to be witnesses very quickly, you know, during the impeachment deal was because some of that information would have had to have come out in a very public way. And I think there are folks inside of Capitol Hill that don't want that information to come out because uh, it's not going to reflect, you know, positively on them. So, um, you know, and again, this is these weren't I this was not something where I would have had the responsibility or the authority or the opportunity to to have some of those conversations firsthand because it wasn't within my, you know, within my purview. I'm not just saying that to say, Hey, it's not my fault. I wasn't responsible, but, but I, I had conversations as it was going on with, again, with the secretary of defense and saying, Hey, you know, this, all, all these people coming up and, you know, what, what's going to be done from a national guard standpoint. And so, you know, I know that those, I have every confidence that, that those offers were made and that they were turned down and, and, um, who ultimately is held responsible, uh, I'm not sure. Thank you for taking us around the globe. John Ratcliffe, former director of national intelligence, I look forward to staying in contact with you. Uh, My pleasure. Always good to be with you, Bill. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.